How's it going? Going <laughs> really well. How was Ghost? Did you watch Ghost with the girls? Yes. Watched- I haven't seen it for years. I know. It's so funny because we, um, Emma and I watched it yesterday, and then she was she just died for it, you know. And, uh, <laughs> oh, great. And um, so and her friend Emma came over today, and they and she said, "Oh, you you got to see this movie Ghost. You got to watch it. You got to watch Ghost. Let's watch it." And then her friend, you know, her friend's not really into movies so much. She's more of a musician type, and mm-hmm. so she watched it with her. But she, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't it didn't touch her in the same way that it did Emma, of course, because they're just different personalities. But um. Like she was kind of you know half distracted watching it and not didn't really cry at the end or whatever. But Emma, of course, was just drawn back in and crying and everything. It's so funny <laughs> to see her really love a movie, you know. That's great. Um, and she's one of those movies, you know, that that at the time when it comes out, you think it's got a little bit junky, but it, it ages really well. Yeah, it ages well because of you know. It never tried to be anything it wasn't. You know, it never, Mm. they never tried to sell it as anything but what it was, which was just kind of a funny, goofy love story, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I think what makes it so, I think Whoopi Goldberg is always just great in it. She's just great. And, but I think that the the love story between them feels authentic and true. And I think that's what, what Emma likes about it. And I think that's what people, when they go back and they look at it, that's what they'll see. It's like, you know, any love story that works really well like that, like It's a Wonderful Life or um, some of them, like, to me, ring pretty false. Like, I never really bought The English Patient, Love. And uh, and Love Story, the movie that, you know, is about what we're going to be talking about tonight with um, the Oscar year. Is it 1970 or 1971? 71, I think. Yeah, I never bought that love story either. But Ghost all, was one. It's all I about the thought. chemistry, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's all about the chemistry, and I don't think that there was much chemistry with Ally McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. So here we are, Oscar Podcast episode twenty-two. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and Ryan Adams and me from AwardsDaily.com, and we are. Um, trying to kind of keep the podcast going uh in the off season and and what we're going to try to do if there's not anything happening oscar wise which there isn't this week then we will talk about um oscar years and we're we, we're going to work our way through starting with um i think it's 1970 is that right craig is it 19 movie year 1970 oscar year 1971 okay mm. movie yeah it's confusing to to think of it like that right we sh- we'll, we'll try to refer to them by the year the movies came out because I still think of like, you know, like this year's Oscars were for the 2012. I, this year's Oscars will always be the two- 2012 Oscars to me. Life of Pi is a 2012 movie. Yeah, I just get confused when I look it up on IMDb because the IMDb goes by the year that the Oscars happened. Mm-hmm. So when I I'm looking something I'm up, it throws me off for a second. It always throws me off because when I talk about Oscar year 1976, for instance, I'm talking about 1976 when, um, you know, uh, Rocky beat all the President's Men and, and Network, and and that is a that's I think that's Oscar year 1976 of movies that came out in 1975, right? Right. So I, I sort of flip back and forth, but when I'm talking about them in the modern era, I always talk about Oscars, like Oscars 2012 would be this year. Yeah, um, that's how I think of it, too. 
but when I look back on the past, I tend to just do it by the Oscar year, like 72 Godfather, 76 Rocky, you know, um, that's funny. It's funny, isn't it? That you think of it that way differently. I think you have to try to make room for both conversations. Maybe we'll try to clarify whenever we do these years like this. We'll try to make sure that we make it make it clear what we're talking about. What I like to do, what's really fun, I like to look at when we look at, to see what year the Oscars were 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 awarded. Is is what day and month they were? Like the seventy one Oscars were April fifteenth. Wow! Isn't that funny? God. Well, I remember. I remember when I first started paying attention to the Oscars, they were definitely in late March. I mean, I remember it's springtime in L.A. when you have the Oscars, and it gave people a long time to really contemplate what movies deserve to win, I think, and it wasn't it wasn't so rushed as when they changed the date. They moved it back. It really did change the race significantly, uh, and I watched it happen, so I know for a fact that it did, And but, but things were different back then when they had more time. Can you imagine, though, paying as much attention to it then as we do now and having to go through, like, four or five months of that process that we just went through? I don't think I could stand it. I know I couldn't, and I have to say, I'm, you know, I was right there starting the industry, so I watched it go from, you know, a nothing industry where it was just a couple of trades, cop following it, and maybe the L.A. Times reporting on it to, you know, dozens of blogs and websites following the race and helping to shape the race. In fact, shaping the race, really, they do. They shape the race. The race doesn't happen without Oscar bloggers and critics, um, you know, honing it, honing down the winners and, and kind of herding them into the pen. And that's what I thought was so interesting about this last year was that the Oscars rebelled in a tiny way from that because they, they went against the consensus pick. They did something different than what the you know the oscar machine told them to do the oscar machine told them that these directors were supposed to be nominated and they went against it i just thought it was interesting it's the first time i've ever seen them do that before in such a dramatic way um it was more of sure a rebellion they, by one branch though not the whole not the whole obviously that's the, whole, how it started. the whole group capitulated but the but the um but history proves that you know with one or one exception in recent times that the directors are the kings, you know, they do decide, or they have in the past. So they, they were, they're more important than any other branch, or they have been traditionally. Um, and we can keep rehashing this, this race till, till we, you know, <laughs> forever, but, you know, nobody will ever know if Argo was going to win without him getting snubbed. We'll just never know the answer to that. So to me, it looked like a coup. It looked like people wanted to correct the Academy doing it wrong, um, rather than, really looking at what was the best film of the year. I don't think Argo was a bad choice for best picture at all. I just think that it, it, it becomes even really clear just a few weeks after the Oscars. And imagine what it's going to look like in five years or ten years. So I'm not saying it's it's embarrassing to them at all. It's not. It's just interesting to see how the, the trends go. I don't know if I will see, um, as long as I'm doing this, a... Uh, uh, a, a, the Academy being able to break from this giant consensus in front of them that's telling them what to do. You know, I'll be curious to see if they if they ever go against, say, what the Producers Guild says, because they haven't since they changed to, to more than five. They've they've picked what the Producers Guild told them to pick every time, because they're basically the same people. It's just a smaller group of them, but it makes the Oscars interesting and less powerful than they used to be. Um, but 
heading into these 70s years, I was really struck by just my sort of overreaching opinion of them just reading through. I read 70 in Inside Oscar, Damien Bona and Mason Wiley's wonderful book about Oscar history. I was looking at 70, 71, and 72, and something was 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 definitely um, similar then to now, which was that everybody was talking about how irrelevant the Oscars were and how they, they were an outmoded, outdated system that didn't appeal to young people at all and that wasn't didn't have its um, thumbprint on, on what was happening in, in the world or in Hollywood. And it's interesting because we look at the 70s as the, just the opposite. You know, we, we think of the 70s as the time when the Oscars really were, you know, um, the leaders and they really did honor the best kind of films back then. Um but the other thing that I noticed was that stars did not, they were embarrassed to be associated with the Oscars and they didn't show up, a lot of them. And a lot of them didn't want to, uh, George C. Scott, for instance, he just he just completely wrote them off as a joke. You know, when he, when he won for Patton, he refused that Oscar. All through his whole career, he refused it. He, he even said for them to donate it to a museum and they never did because he never filled out the paperwork. But... Um, he won that Oscar anyway um, to his own, you know, protestations. And then Marlon Brando did the same thing with um, The Godfather the following year. And even Jade Fonda had said in, in, in interviews that she didn't care about the Oscars. She didn't think anything of them. She only used them to publicize her political causes. And then there was Vanessa Redgrave. And um, in 1970 or 71, I guess, the ceremony... Um, a lot of stars and a lot of winners just flat out didn't show up to the Oscars. Uh, and it seemed to run through these early 70s years, this kind of, the Oscars are so disrespectful and we're protesting them. And, and I have to wonder if part of that wasn't part of why the 70s and Oscar was such a hot decade, you know. Or maybe just the films were better. Who knows? One thing I think, and you touched on it when you mentioned Jane Fonda talking about her political causes, I think that the late 60s, from the mid-60s to the late 60s, there was that whole counterculture movement in America that had not existed ever before, where it was, you know, um, going against the man kind of thing. Mm. And I think especially the younger actors probably felt really in touch with that, and the, the even the actors into their 30s, you know, uh, would probably, like, like you say, Brando and, and George e. Scott probably felt the same way. They, they identify with this counterculture thing where the establishment was no longer that a cool thing to be identified with. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because when were the Manson murders? Well, that must have been just before Chinatown, so that would have been what... Uh, um, which year was that? Why don't 75? I know this? I should know this. Yeah, I was just thinking because the backlash to the counterculture really came right after the Manson murders. And yeah, Chinatown was 74, so the so Manson murders were... Let me check real quick. Yeah, it was, so, I mean, there's so many so many factors, I think, uh, in play there. And I do think that, I do think that possibly... Um, there was that transition era right there but on the cusp of the 60s and 70s when especially people were turning against the Oscars. And that's why the Oscars tried to change. They tried to change by, by nominating movies like Midnight Cowboy and Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider because those were the movies that the young people were going to see that really didn't cost that much. You know, So it was a great – Hollywood really loved that. Mm. 
It was interesting, though, because in the year we're looking at, the, the, the system was still coming out on top. Patton won that year, and MASH was the sort of the snotty counterculture upstart. Two war movies, mm. both inspired by Vietnam, um, but the, the much squarer picture finally finally won, whereas, whereas MASH was sort of made a, a billion dollars, but it, was, it didn't win. How Although is... Coppola did his best to make sure that this patent script had some elements in it that, that saved it from being too square, I think. Yeah, but it was rewritten after he turned it in. A lot of his stuff, I don't, I don't know how much of his stuff stayed in. I know that the opening um, the opening speech in front of the, the um, American flag he wrote and stayed in, but a lot of it was, was squarified, I think, hmm. a- how... after the fact. I haven't actually never, I'm ashamed to admit, but I've never seen Patton, and I really would love to see it just because of, you know, George C. Scott's performance, but um, how different is it from MASH? Oh, so different. But, you know, they're both excellent movies. Patton is fantastic. You really need to see Patton. I really like Patton Patton a lot. If if you like George C. Scott at all, you have to watch it. He's ferocious in it. Well, what's it about, basically? Like, I'm I'm wondering, can we draw any sort of parallels between MASH and... Um, Patton versus Argo and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, would Mash be the Argo and and Patton be? Mash would. Mash would be, be the other way around in a way. Although neither one of the films was really um, was as hard hitting as Zero Dark Thirty, but but Mash was was more. Mash had more seemed to have more to say about war in general, um, and Patton fit more of the biography mode a little bit and. Um, mm. It was strictly biopic, and it was, it was strictly um, focused on Patton's World War II years. Yeah. It, it, it was much more reverential, and it, it had an edge to it, and a lot of that edge probably did come from Coppola, but um, it, 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 it was pretty straightforward. It was much more the Argo, I think, of the two. Hmm, interesting. I would love to watch it. I think I will. Of course, I've seen MASH, which I love, but um, MASH was so great. It was so revolutionary. Um, I, I just wonder, what do you guys think about the stars not showing up? I mean, I, I'm reading some of the stuff that um, George C. Scott and Al Pacino and uh, some of these guys, Marlon Brando, were saying about the Oscars. You know, they they were really anti-celebrity, anti um, um, this uh, this idea that, that that Joaquin Phoenix actually spoke out about rightly this year about the Oscar race being a meat market and. And a ridiculous competition, and and George C. Scott had said uh, that the only award that he thought he deserved was the award from the New York Film Critics, and because he felt the film critics were the ones that could could talk about you know what what makes a great performance, and it made me think about why did it bother George C. Scott so much? Was it because? The Oscars are essentially a popularity contest, and it's all about who your friends are in Hollywood, and it's all about promoting the product, and they don't feel like it's right to do that up against each other. I know that Dustin Hoffman had a problem with it, so much so that when he accepted his award for Kramer versus Kramer, he, he, made, he made note of it in his speech about the contest and about how shameless it was. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic in the 70s that that was so prevalent among celebrities and actors. I, mean, I, know, I know what I for think. sure, but I... Th- oh, go ahead. Uh, I, yeah, keep... Hold your thought, Craig. Well, one of the reasons I think is possibly because the movies that won Best Picture and the movies that were winning the Oscars in the, in the mid to late 60s were just pure Hollywood, like um, Oliver and, uh, you know, uh, Sound of Music and My Fair Lady, 
you know, those movies were the ones that were winning Best Picture. That would be that would be like um, Les Mis winning this year. You know, mm-hmm. think of like think of like Les Mis won two or three years in a row. You know how how that would sort of sour the cool people against the Oscars if movies like that were all that ever won. Right. Well, because I guess 1968 um, was the year that that um, well Oliver had won well, Oliver came out in 1968 and won in 1969 well 1968 was when Mar- Martin Luther King and and Robert Kennedy were both shot exactly and you got funny girl nominated and, and Oliver you know and, and so right. they're just well, where's the relevance there and the, meanwhile the movies that that lose are the movies that have a little bit of a political conscience like Lion and Winter and um, you know the movies that probably people consider to be more serious were the, the losers right just like this year, Lincoln was the loser. Not you know, in, in it lost more than we wanted it to. I think on top of that tension between what was happening in the real world and this 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 artificiality that Hollywood tends to push, I think it, it started with Brando back in the fifties and sort of come and sort of fusing theater acting with movie acting and, and sort of transforming the role of a movie actor and, and the style and much more realistic and 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 hard hitting and I think I think actors maybe were were struggling against actors of his generation and later were struggling against that notion of celebrity and movie star and were really trying to be taken seriously as artists rather than as vehicles for entertainment and, and I think the Oscars obviously tend to to tie into that old Hollywood thing and I think that maybe they were rebelling against it a little bit. I mean, you look at the bet, people who won Best Actor in 1968, Cliff Robertson for Charlie, which was like probably one of the weakest movies, one of the weakest Best Actor performances ever. And then the following year, John Wayne wins for True Grit. How is it going to make serious actors feel when, right. when Cliff Robertson and John Wayne are win, winning movies like for Charlie and, and uh, the old style True Grit? You know, it's like pathetic, really. Yeah. Who wants to be associated with that? Right, that's true. Um, but but something shifted because when I first started, I know I've said this a million times. I'm forgive me for repeating myself, listeners, because I know you know that I say a million things, a million different, same, you know, whatever. It's hate Sasha Stone week. <laughs> I know that. No, um, the the change really came. You know, when I was a kid, this was the '70s. I was a kid in the '70s, and when I grew up watching award shows. It was embarrassing to go to them, especially the Golden Globes. And and when I started blogging about the Oscars, a lot of stars still weren't going to the Golden Globes. But something happened. Something shifted. I don't know if it was our industry paying more attention, uh, the publicity, I, you know, the, the money, the independence. I, I don't know what happened. But, but Were the Globes point, on TV back then in the 70s? Were the Globes a big television event I like they are so. now? Yeah, I think they always have been. But I could look that up on Wikipedia to find out when they went. Mm-hmm. live on tv but um but maybe not maybe you're right maybe that's why they didn't show up because it wasn't a televised event but but now you know they all go to the critics choice awards right. critics choice awards is the lowest of the low sorry excuse me critics choice listeners but when you when you you know you take tony kushner off the air for winning uh screenplay and you um you know, on your dumb television show, you lose all credibility. Sorry, you just do. So, not just. You mean when you when you don't even show his face on screen when you're reading his name out as one of the Oscar nominees, right? As they did this year. Right. Yeah. But anyway, something changed, and now all the celebrities go. 
They don't have I, to go. I think it's the focus on the race itself, and, and it's because of the internet and this this attention to it. I think back in the when I was a kid, I mean, you didn't even think about the Oscars until they were on, and then it's like, oh, here are the Oscars, and then you would watch them, and then they would be <laughs> over. But now, for six months leading up to it, we're talking about it, and it becomes this publicity vehicle for everybody, and the publicists get involved, and it just becomes this self-supporting crazy thing. Right. And, it, the, the and there's Twitter, no end of it. Yeah. Twitter and blogs have made it made it cooler, really, because of the because of the people who are not only the people who write the blogs, but the people who come to the blogs and the people who are interested and follow follow the Oscars now. Back then, in the seventies and sixties, there was probably no other venue for FYC ads except probably Hollywood Reporter and Variety. Right? Where else would they have ever wanted to print an FYC ad? And so that's sort of like a head up your ass kind of thing back right. then. Probably a lot of people perceived. Right. They didn't. They actually, you know, during the time that I've been doing this, they shifted from as things became more online, um, they shifted from advertising with just those trades to advertising with a lot of different sites with with, you know, David Poland started it with Movie City News. But they do, you know, all of our Oscar plugs and they do the New York Times and they they even advertise on like the Producers Guild website. You know, the money's everywhere. And you know, to to a degree, the fix is in. You know, that's what I thought was funny about this year. And I seem to be the only one in my field that really gets it and really thinks it's not that I get it, that I'm so smart, but just that I noticed it because I've been here for so long. But just that... Well, you're certainly yeah. one of the few people who are writing about it. Nobody yeah. else, if, they, if other people have noticed it, they're like keeping it a secret. They're not talking about it much because they know that it, it's not a popular thing with a lot of people and it makes them a target. And so they would almost rather like avoid the controversy. But, you know, we're not afraid of that. Well, things have changed so much that I remember in 2006, even when I was walking, when I went to, to um, a party at the Chateau Marmont with David Carr. And everybody, of course, knew the, who the New York Times was, but... He would introduce me, Sasha Stone of Oscar Watch, because I was Oscar Watch then. And nobody had any idea what my site was. Nobody even knew what Oscar blogging was. They didn't even know. They were like, oh, you write about the Oscars? Really? No, we were talking about the evolution of the Oscars and how they've changed and why they have changed and what has made their their attitude and their choices shift over the years. Another thing that just occurs to me is that, say, for instance, that you invite new members in the late 1960s, you invite Jane Fonda and you invite Dustin Hoffman for the very first time to be Academy members, and they get their Oscar ballots, and they're not going to be voting for My Fair Lady or Oliver. They're going to be voting for the some serious fucking movies. You know, they're going to be voting for some really interesting movies. So they turn in their ballots and they lose year, their, their favorite movies lose year after year. And so what, how's that going to make them feel? The new, younger, hipper members of the Academy are going to say, why am I even a member? I'm voting for these really cool movies and they never win. Right. And so, but I think then eventually you invite more and more younger, cooler, hipper members. And th- that's when the Academy, um, attitude changes is when the the makeup of the membership changes and so maybe by the mid-70s then early to mid-70s they had they the academy had glommed onto that and decided look we need to freshen up our membership if we're going to attract new members we can't have a a bunch of stodgy people who are voting for the stodgiest movies all the time Mm. and so maybe the younger generation then felt like with movies like cabaret and the godfather and chinatown with younger members then probably felt like, hey, we own the Oscars now. The Academy is ours. This is the movies that are winning are the movies that we make and that we like, and so the, the Academy belongs to us now. And so then it was cool again. But then something shifted again 
in around 19, the 80s. You know, the 80s started a different shift because, like, Chariots of Fire won, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Gandhi won, and, you know, out of there, terms of endearment. I mean, and then they yeah. switched back to being kind of what I just were. always felt that they're like these warring factions within the academy and that they're really w- well balanced. They're They're almost like almost like Democrats and Republicans in the United States. That's why we have such crazy shifts between a really cool president like Obama and a really shitty president like Bush. How can America like both those guys? How can that be possible? It's because the country is so evenly divided, and I think the academy is evenly divided in the same way. It's always a warring thing, and it's just right on the edge, and it tips one way one year, and it tips the other way to the cooler way another year. I know, but it never replaced, it never, the 70s stand alone. You know, there is no other decade in the in all of Oscar history, in all 86 years of it, that can match the 70s. I well, think you, it's because of the it. movies. It was the exactly. golden era of American movies. Yeah. In the 1980s, American big movies took a huge dump for the most part, and the Oscars went right along with it. But in the 70s, the popular... As- Popular movies were also artistic movies, and they were also award-winning movies. It was this remarkable confluence of forces that just, it, it was amazing. But when Star Wars, and as much as we love Jaws, when Jaws and Star Wars and movies like that came along in the blockbuster era started, Hollywood changed the type of movies that they make, and they stopped making the serious adult grown-up movies like they did in the 70s. That and the studios being bought out by banks, basically, and and being run by people who had no interest in movies and were only interested in making money. Absolutely. Well, and then another another shift happened sort of right around the time when I was... um when I started, which was the influence of the Weinstein Co. on the Oscar race. And that really did also shift it again. But if you just flip through and you see the winners, you'll find maybe one really good one per decade. And the rest of the time, they're kind of crappy movies that win. It's interesting. Every decade, you mean? Every decade, yeah. Uh yeah, Except uh the 70s, when I think Uh you had more than than, um, one... um, you know, one great winner, but 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 let's go back to um, let's go let's focus on our Oscar year, which is our it's it's, it's Oscar year nineteen seventy one of the movies from nineteen seventy, right? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, does anybody want to give a quick overview of that year, and then we can all? I don't know about it if I can give an overview, but one thing that stands out for me about the ni- the nineteen seventy one Oscars is this: it's the same situation as we had this year when there were. Two, there were only three directors that matched the Best Picture mm. nominees. So there were two directors, uh, Fellini and Ken Russell, didn't have their um, pictures nominated. Fellini had Satyricon, and Ken Russell had Women in Love, and neither of those were nominated for Best Picture. So that's one of the rare years when not only do the directors not match five for directors, pictures match five for five, they had two mismatches mm. that year. And I think possibly that's because the movies were a little bit weak in 1970. I mean, if Airport is going to be nominated for Best Picture, that's crazy enough that Airport is nominated for Best Picture. You're not going to nominate the director of Airport for Best Director. Right. right? And, and when I was reading an Inside Oscar, they were saying how everybody was horrified that Airport had gotten 10 nominations, that nobody had understood why that trashy movie could have gotten that many nominations. And it does sort of stand out as a glaring 
Well, that's another thing that happens almost every year. You've got one movie, especially in the, in the years when there were five nominees, you've got the one oddball movie that seems like a movie from, an, from the previous decade. It seems like a movie that is so old-fashioned, and I think that's because there are 20% of the members of the Academy who just really are fond of those kind of movies, and they like seeing... Helen Hayes or whatever, you know, in a, in, an old, in, a, in a new movie because it gives them hope that, oh, look at the old person, you know, is still getting work. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, she won Best Supporting Actress that year, didn't she? Right, right. Helen, Helen, yeah, Helen Hayes. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I just, I, I guess I, I'm wondering, you know, I, I definitely think of... Um, I definitely think of the, the, you know, the meaning of the Oscars all the time, especially this year. Like, what does it mean, and why do people keep saying, you know, you shouldn't care about what wins Best Picture? You know, well, what does that mean? Does that does that mean that 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 the Oscars really are just a joke, and that they've always been a joke, or does that mean that they, you know, that they have the potential still to be relevant? I think we love it when they're relevant and we're disappointed in them like we're disappointed in, in, a, in, a, in a boyfriend or a child that does the wrong thing, you know, and disappoints you. It dis- makes you sad for them, but you still love them. <laughs> From a historical standpoint, I think it's still relevant in terms of it, it, it's a measurement of something. It tells us something about the year that we just had, not so much about the movies themselves, but about the people who watched them. You know, it tells it tells us it kind of tells us the mood in Hollywood. I think. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can still look at the old, the historical record of the old Oscars, and I can still find. Like I first found out about. Um, a citizen, a citizen above suspicion, by looking at at the Oscars ten years ago. I never would have known about that movie, but it won Best Foreign Film that year, and it's a fantastic movie. It's a, it was a precursor to like The Conformist, which is my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies of all time. The Italian political thriller began with with a citizen under suspicion or above suspicion. I can't even. How does well, the title go? I forget. Speaking of foreign film, Ryan, your favorite mm-hmm. quote happened in 1971, um, which was by Louis. Louis Bunuel. Louis Bunuel, yeah, huh? Is, how do you pronounce it? Uh, is it? Is it Louis? Louis Bunuel, huh? Louis Bunuel. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he refused his Oscar <laughs> because he made that famous quote, which I'm looking for right now. Which, which I is- can almost. I think I might have it committed to memory. I'm so dis- I would, I'm, I'm disgusted by the Oscar. I, I would be disgusted. I would be disgusted to win an Oscar. I wouldn't have one in my house. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote something. And he like was that. nominated that year. I believe he was nominated that year. Maybe won. that's what he was thinking. That I hope I don't. I'm not even going to show up because I don't want that damn thing. I think he he actually won it. If I can find it here, I'm trying to. Find uh, it. He was nominated, but the movie that I just mentioned, A Citizen Above Suspicion. Oh, that's that was the, the movie that won. Oh, yeah. okay. And he may have Boone may have lost because of that quote. If that if that quote was widely reported back then, they might have well thought, well, fuck you then. <laughs> <laughs> compare compare that to what Joaquin Phoenix said, and what it's, he said was so much tamer and milder than what he said than what uh, Buñuel said, and people just had a cow and freaked out like he was was giving a big Cleveland steamer to Hollywood. It was it was ridiculous because it's not fashionable now. But but right. but in the early seventies, it was really fashionable to hate on the Oscars, and in fact, um, the the Academy showed that they didn't care that Joaquin Phoenix said that because they gave the master three um, Oscar nominations. It deserved more than that, in my opinion, but they gave it three and they gave him a nomination. Right. So they showed that they didn't care. Um, 
<laughs> Louis Bunuel says, nothing would disgust me more morally than receiving an Oscar. I wouldn't have it in my home. <laughs> and it's even worse, isn't it? I forgot the part about it. It disgusts him, disgusts him morally. It's like a moral outrage to receive an Oscar. <laughs> I love sin. that so much. And, and um, George C. Scott's sentiments were similar. And I know that, you know, Woody Allen comes out of that school because he, you know, he uh, won Franny Hall and he never showed up at the Oscars when he won um, because he felt the same way. You know, it's just that I love the 70s because of that, because they were so disgusted with it. The Oscars kind of had to carry on, you know. That's the amazing thing about them is that they're still here. They're still getting as much criticism now as they got then. Um there's a bigger industry of, of kiss asses, of course, that, that, (laughs) you know, don't want to, to, to take them to task, but listen, they're used to it. They've been being complained about for all the time they've, they've existed, you know? So when people say, Oh, don't complain about the Oscars. Well, of course you can complain about the Oscars. You know, they don't, first of all, they don't care. And second of all, you know, it's almost like they want you to, you know? Yeah. If you're not complaining about it, then nobody's paying attention and they're doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> Can I just say, talking about the fact that the, that the directors and the best pictures didn't match up that year, one of the directors who was nominated in 1970 was Frederico Fellini, who made fantastic movies in the 60s, but the movie he was nominated for in 1970 was Fellini's Satyricon, which is widely renowned as the shittiest Fellini movie ever. It is absolutely <laughs> the worst movie he ever made, and that's the movie he was nominated for Best Director. Oh. So when Louis Benwell sees that, when he sees that Fellini is being nominated for Best Director for a piece of shit like Fellini satiricon well how's he going to feel because of the movies that he was making that year that is a classic now yeah you know That's i mean i personally i kind of i kind of like satiricon because it's just so trashy it's like a, it's like a really elaborate high budget gay porn movie <laughs> it's an amazingly trashy sleazy thing it's like oh my god what is this yeah, but but how can that how, how could that have ever been nominated for for best director you just wonder how did that happen it's so gay. I know it's funny, isn't it? But but people they thought differently back then. The critics were different back then. You know, really the only critics anybody paid attention to were the New York film critics, and that was like Pauline Kael, basically. You know, and what she thought mattered, and and some of the things she thought were, were really weird and bizarre. But but when you read it back and you look at how they couched their opinion around certain films that you know are classics now. Uh, although I will say, Pauline Kael ta- about about uh, Fellini's Satyricon said that it was Mondo Trasho. <laughs> that was the title of her review for Fellini's Satyricon, Mondo Trasho. Wow. So she was not, she, even she saw through Fellini's Satyricon. Well, my theory about Fellini's nomination for Best Director that year, he had been nominated eight times already for very great movies for like eight and a half and, and his early, you know, neorealist movies uh, for director and screenplay. And he lost eight different times. Wow. At, in the, by the late 60s and early 70s, people probably were looking back on Fellini's career and saw how important he was in film history, realized that he had not ever won an Oscar after being nominated so many times. And they may have been a little bit thinking... You know, we need to give this guy a, a director, uh, an Oscar, or we're going to be looking really bad historically if, if we if we let Fellini die or, or fade out of out of relevance, re- relevance, and he hasn't won an Oscar yet. So they, it would get to the point where they would nominate him for anything just to have another chance to to give him an to give him an Oscar. He was nominated four more times. He was nominated twelve times altogether and lost every single time. Wow. So they finally had to give him an honorary Oscar. That's incredible. But, wow. No, no, really. 
So that's what I'm thinking is that I really, I, I, you know, I hate to say, but I really think that Satyricon is to Fellini what Django is to Tarantino. I think at that point in, in, in Fellini's career, he was such a personality in his own right that people thought, well, anything Fellini does must be good, even if we don't get it. It must be kind of over our heads or something, because well, I think just because of his past work. A lot of directors clearly honor the people that influence them, and they have reverence for the leaders and the masters, which is why Ang Lee and Steven Spielberg were, were included in the race, not for the win. I mean, Ang Lee for the win, but you know what I mean, that... that they have to pay reverence to them. I always think of Francis Ford Coppola getting uh, a nomination for Godfather Three, and that was because you know he's Francis Ford Coppola, and he made the Godfather One, the Godfather Two, and Godfather Three did not deserve that nomination for Best Picture. Right? It got Best Picture, not Best Director. Right? Um, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. But that, either way, it's unbelievable because that I know, was so, it was so weak compared to the first two installments. Let me look and see what he got. But but I'm just saying, like, they do seem to have appreciation for people who have inspired them, or at least they did in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Things have changed so much um, since then, and both in terms of Hollywood. For one thing, movies like that that got made in the 70s that were the big box office draws of the 70s, those are your fringe and those those are your fringe indie movies. If that now, um, you tend to see in America, you don't see that that kind of storytelling anymore. You don't, you know. I was reading; they were saying that Peter Bogdanovich was Peter Bogdanovich, Francis Ford Coppola, and one other director, William Friedkin, maybe were like the three great um, future film, you know, artists of America, the art auteurs of America. Peter Bogdanovich because of. Um, uh, last, the last picture, picture show, show and 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 Coppola because of the Godfathers and Friedkin because of um, the French Connection and it really looked like they were giving birth to what would become American cinema, great American cinema. But that never really translated into the Oscar race after the seventies, the eighties, the nineties. Just you know, blow it off. It doesn't matter. They, they have no impact at all. All they do is reward these kind of easy emotional. You know, crowd pleasers, for the most part, with a few exceptions here or there, like you know, Sons of the Lambs. And but I just well, find in me- Bogdanovich's case, he his he didn't live up to his early his first two movies. His the rest of his career, kind of, he really um, slipped. I think so. That's not that's not on the Academy. That's kind of on him. Yeah, and but he and said and Hollywood a- chickened out too. I mean, you look at um, Heaven's Gate, which was renowned in its day for nearly killing united artists or maybe it did finally kill united artists but um that was sort of that movie sort of represented the the pinnacle of the auteur driven american movie and it was a bomb and it was an expensive bomb and movies were never quite the same after that in terms of of i don't know what i'm trying to say i lost my point artistic daring you mean yeah, and have, having one one crazy person at the top with a vision that he wants to get on the page, and having having the studios throw money on him, that that pretty much stopped. At that uh, yeah, point. as far especially as far as as of a studio handing over complete carte blanche uh, director's cut to a director, that that came to a screeching halt after heaven after uh, Heaven's Gate. 
Wow, I didn't realize it had that kind of impact on the industry. Yeah, and that was partially due to a couple of critics, too, who saw an early screening of the movie, the longer version of it, and just savaged it, especially, I think, Canby and the New York Times savaged it. And so they sent it back to the studio, and they, they, they recut it drastically. They cut like an hour out of it and ruined it. So when they finally did release it, the shorter version, it was just all so choppy that people could didn't know what what uh, he'd been up to for so long, how he had spent all that money and come up with such a uh, uh, disjointed movie. So, But when it was reconstructed years later it was re- and reevaluated, people look at it. I, I love it. It's a great movie. Don't you, Craig? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought it. It was definitely my era. I lived through that in 1980. So I was at high school, and, you know, as I came of age in, in appreciating cinema, I remember Heaven's Gate and Michael Cimino being a very big story. And I see he was the writer and director. It was an, he was an, it was an original screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, though, um, just to, to, to circle back to 1972 or 1971, um, there's a funny story where Peter Bogdanovich was casting. I just want to get this out there so I don't forget, but Peter Bogdanovich was casting um, Last Picture Show, and he was trying to get... That old actor to play one of those parts. Who's that guy? That famous Western actor. Um, he's in Last Picture Show. He, he ben played, Johnson. Ben Johnson. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to be in this young upstarts movie. And so um, Bogdanovich happened to be making a documentary um, about John Ford. And, of course, John Ford won um, Best Director, his third um, and Best Picture for How Green Was My Valley, which beat Citizen Kane famously, right? Mm-hmm. So... John Ford, um, Peter Bogdanovich asked asked John Ford to tell ask Ben Johnson to to do Last Picture Show, and and John Ford tells him, you know, you're really gonna to like working with this guy because he's like the the most promising young filmmaker since Orson Welles, and then oh. Peter Bogdanovich says, I really hope I'm not gonna be like Orson Welles. I hope it's not all downhill from here, and that this isn't my one great film. So, oh, and wow, and it just about was, which is ironic too, because you know Bogdanovich and Welles are such great friends. No. At the end of Welles' life, Bogdanovich was like his only friend in the world. But isn't that interesting, though, the connection between the three men, I think. It's yeah, really... absolutely. Yeah. That's a great documentary, too. That was, that was, uh, I think you can still get that on DVD, the, the documentary that um, Bogdanovich made about John Ford. Mm. Anybody should try to find that. And I mean, uh, their listeners should, you know, should try to find that and check it out because it's excellent. Well, he only was, Peter Bogdanovich was only nominated for that. That was it. Last Picture Show um, was nominated. He was nominated for um, director and... He, I think what happened to, I think, well, he made Paper Moon after that, right? Which was a pretty great movie. I really like Paper Moon a lot. But then I think he tried to, he had such a reverence for the old uh, screwball comedies that he tried to do that a couple of times. He tried to, he tried to mimic too many old style Hollywood movies and, and pay homage to them. And it just didn't translate, I think, in the 70s. What he, he made Daisy Miller and, um, Something with Barbara Streisand and... Uh, What's Up Doc was awesome, though. Even what? if it was not an Academy Award-nominating kind of movie, it was still great. Well, I have no, I've never seen it. I just knew that it was like a screwball comedy homage. And I had always just heard bad things about it, but I'll try to find it and check it out if you recommend it. Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand. I'm kind of horrified that Paper Moon wasn't nominated, though. I'm looking back, and I know that in, in the system we have now, it probably would have been nominated, but... Um, that year, instead of Paper Moon, was The Sting, which won, um, like, 
It's like the weakest of the five. <laughs> the Sting in America. It was up against American Graffiti, which was great. Cries and Whispers needs no comment. The Exorcist, phenomenal. And A Touch of Class, well, A Touch of Class, you know, whatever. I don't know much about A Touch of Class. Is that a Neil Simon thing? I don't know. I did see it when I was a kid. I remember it pretty well. Um, some kind of weird affair movie. You know? Glenda Jackson is in that, right? Yeah, it's like they're having an affair, the two of them. I do remember that part of it. But um, but Paper Moon should have been in there. And it, it, it um, I guess it won for Tatum O'Neill, but it was only otherwise nominated for Supporting Actress Sound and Screenplay and no Bogdanovich. So they must have had something against him, I think, after. Maybe he they thought he thought too much of himself. You know? Possibly. I don't know what it is. You know, he's, 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 uh, he has an unusual personality. He, he's uh, he's really academic. He's really an egghead. Oh, I know. I'm not sure how how well that would have gone over. No way. You know what happened? He had an affair. He left Polly Platt with oh, yeah. Sybil Shepherd. That's, That's right. what yeah. happened, and it ruined his it ruined his goodwill. Rep- oh yeah. <laughs> he's just, oh. He's, so that's what really happened to him is his personal life swallowed yeah. up his career and people were grossed out by him you know polly platt was a production designer she was a really well-respected woman and she did and they say that her influence on um last picture show was as, as great as his influence right she got co-directed it practically yeah so it's like here honey thanks for nothing i'm gonna go hang out with the girl who i might i might just add that when i was at um columbia i, I love to tell this story and i've told it too many times probably but um Andrew Saris was one of the lecturers, <laughs> and I was running the projection, um, the film projector, when they did the last picture show, and he he, he um, introduced it to the class, whatever class it was. I was just the projectionist, so I wasn't in the class, but I was watching him. And he said that he talked, he told many, many stories about the last picture show, but the one funny story he told was how Civil Shepherd <laughs> had inverted nipples and how much it bugged. Peter Bogdanovich and how he had to do all these things to make her inver- her nipples. <laughs> what kind of things would you do? I wonder. I want to know these things. These sucks on them. No, ice, ice cubes maybe. <laughs> anyway. Now you could be CGI. You could just have CGI nipples. <laughs> Next time I watch it, I'm gonna look in the credits and see if there's a nipple fluffer credited in there. <laughs> the truth is, is she was. She was forbidden fruit, and just try resisting Civil Shepherd. Impossible. She was so. Oh, I know, absolutely. But I, I side with Polly Platt on that one. You know, get, you know, at least wait till the movie shoots over, divorce her respectably, and then no. I just look at that as like that's the worst example of what a guy. You know, he he gets his first chance to direct a movie, and he's suddenly the wonderkin, and he does something that stupid. You know, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, and then she dumped him shortly thereafter. I think. Well, of course she would, because yeah. I mean, I mean, of course she would. I think so. I think that's how it went down. But I don't, I don't remember the whole story. I just know that that's m- maybe what turned Hollywood against him. We could probably do an entire podcast on the Last Picture Show. I know we almost did once, didn't we? I think it seems like that we did talk about it a lot, and I could talk about it forever. I love that movie so much, and I love the the backstory is so interesting because there's so many people who have come forward with their recollections and their memories of that time. So there's so much that's known about it. Yeah, I think it's astonishing that that his career really died after that. Pretty much, I mean, he made great movies afterwards, but he was never embraced again. It just shows you what an affair can do. 
was Ali McGraw the Jennifer Lawrence of 1970? Do you think? Can we? I, I, I sometimes I and, and it's just tempting to want to to look at the year that we just came out of and want to compare it to other years. It's a dangerous and kind of a silly thing to do, but it's, it's tempting and and fun. So I I just wonder. Uh, Ali McGraw was the flavor of the of the month in 1970, and and it just didn't pan out for her. Yeah, well, the two, yeah, exactly. The two differences between then is that basically Weinstein Co., you know, they have this Oscar thing wrapped up. They know exactly how to win, and mm-hmm. they know exactly what to do to make their best actress win. And and history was going to prove that if you have four nominations for acting, one of those is going to win. You have to go back to, like, 1950 to find a time when they didn't. So who was it going to be? It wasn't going to be Robert De Niro's terrible performance. It wasn't going to be Jackie Weaver. You know, and a right. Bradley mm-hmm. Cooper, forget it. So, you know, in a way, it had to be Jennifer Lawrence to win for the movie also. That's what it was. I do think that I used to, that's another thing that I used to resist, the idea that people uh, fill out their ballots thinking, well, I've got to give something to this movie. I, because that's not the way I would do it. But then, on the other hand, when I fill out our simulated ballot that I that Rob makes up for us, I find myself tempted to do that. It's like, wait a minute, I've gone, I've, I'm filling out all these all my categories and I haven't given anything to such and such. And so maybe people do look at their blank ballots and, and see why, well, you know, I did like silver linings. I have to give it something. So what's it going to be? Right. I don't know. I have no idea how they think. All I know is that when I read the 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 Jamie Lee Curtis criticism of Seth MacFarlane, um, she was saying, you know, not to take away from Jennifer Lawrence's brilliant performance or Argo's lovely win, or you know, she was praising the the winners. Mm-hmm. So that tells me that, you know, a lot of people really liked her performance and thought she was really good, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah. I don't doubt that. I mean, um, they must have or they wouldn't have nominated in the first place. And then she, and she wouldn't have had the, been able to – they wouldn't have been able to accumulate enough votes to win. I I don't think that everybody th- thought felt that way. Just the same way that I don't think that Jane Fonda and, and – um, with Dustin Hoffman and the and the cool people who were new Academy members, younger Academy members in the seventies, were could have possibly have approved of all the of all the winners back then. They must have been really disappointed until it, it turned around and 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 they were able to like wrest control of 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 the Academy. Well, I also think that a lot of the cool people in the seventies have gotten old. People like you know. The directors have become old now. They're old. Yeah, but I think that you can be old. You can get older and still stay cool. What I worry about, what I really am starting to think, my another theory of mine is that not only are the people who are cool back in the '60s and '70s getting old, they're dying off. We're losing them. We're losing some of those people. And as we lose them, who's left in the Academy? The people who became Academy members in the '80s. That's yeah. not a good idea. No. <laughs> That's kind of scary that, that we're is. losing the really cool people from the 1960s and 70s little by little by attrition. And the people who are replacing them are the Russell Brands and the Beyonce's. <laughs> <laughs> you know? All right. Let me just... scrape the bottom of the Oscar barrel. <laughs> God, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. That's what I'm worried about. But oh. I, I, we, I, I just think that for too long that we blame the older people in the academy for for being stodgy. But I do think that a lot of older people in the academy made some really great movies, and we have to kind of think that they stayed cool as they got older, that they didn't t- suddenly just turn into old fogies. Well, now you know? that now that um, 
basically they they write off the film critics because the blogging community has completely consumed what used to be film criticism now and and any movie any film can find their fans look at ben affleck all he had to do was hang out with the bloggers and he had them on his side so critics don't really make an impact anymore to, to, to kind of train and, and educate Academy members on what makes a great film, which they did in the 70s. They really did have an impact in that way. And now um, if you have your daughter talking about Russell Brand and Beyonce, you're not going to get the same kind of, well, what did the critics think that you used to have? So, yeah, we're, we're basically talking about a, a dirt sandwich coming up for the next few decades. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> But let me just say, interestingly, just to go back to 1971, I was just looking here at IMDb, and here's the people who didn't show. George C. Scott wasn't there. Um, Best Actress winner Glenda Jackson wasn't there. And Supporting Actress Helen Hayes wasn't there. And, and and, And Director winner for Patton wasn't there. Isn't that funny? Like I know. I guess so. All Coppola those wasn't there because Coppola was in the middle of directing, starting to direct The Godfather, so he wasn't there. Um, no, he wasn't there either. That's right. Coppola wasn't there either. So, like, nobody was there to accept a lot of these major awards. That's hysterical, isn't it? It yeah, is, really, yeah. I just really do think that they that, that a lot of people were embarrassed by the movies that had won in the, in the late 60s, and they just thought, oh, my God, why should I even show up if these junk movies are going to keep winning? If there's going to be another year when Oliver and My Fair Lady... And Sound of Music wins. Why? What's that got to do with right. me? That's not. That's not my style. I think it's partly that, but it was also a lot of them were just were protesting the idea that, like you said, the establishment culture, the very idea of what Joaquin Phoenix was talking about, the very mm-hmm. idea of awards, of right. awarding and pitting each person against each other and having award campaigns. Right, mm-hmm. acting should be an art, not the prom. It's and we know that we know that that was on their minds because they actually made statements about to that effect. Especially George C. Scott made made exactly that explicitly clear. Right, he did. He was the one who said it was like a meat market or a meat. You know that that they put slabs of meat next to each other, and and um, I think you know I I did kind of. I only reamed Joaquin Phoenix not because of what he said wasn't true. I did think it was true. I just thought that in saying it, he was kind of screwing over a movie that was already a tough sell to begin with and that it really did need Oscar attention because it wasn't making any money. You're right about that. I do. I wish that he hadn't said it, but I do think that when, when, when we did read the entire interview in Interview Magazine and saw it in context of the other things he was saying, how really thoughtful and... and uh, um, conscientious he sounded about about the craft of acting the, it may it, when you see the other things he said about acting in movies it made what he did say about the oscars not that important but right. that's not the thing that got quoted but i kind of that was my beef at the time is how out of context they took the the bulk of what it was that he said they took the couple of mm-hmm. juicy one sentence nuggets and blew it totally out of proportion because it made for good headlines right mm-hmm. i kind of wish that more actors would speak out like that i know they all think that didn't Ethan Hawke do the same? Say and the same did thing? Also, Didn't you quote yeah. him in one of the Oscar bits and bites things? But I'm hoping that the more at some point more actors will come out. Um, they won't, though. Who are we kidding? They well, won't. the ones who want to win won't. <laughs> you know that's for sure because they they know how much it's going to hurt them. Yeah. Right. Well, how many years in a row can Oscar nominate, or not, how many years in a row can Oscar reward a cat turd and have it still be meaningful and have people still want one? 
I don't know. They do, though. They do because it's about money and power, and it's not yeah. about anything. An ego. An ego. And maybe they convince themselves that really they did deserve it. I do think, too, part of it, I mean, part of that, wanting an Oscar is if you have uh, $20 million in the bank and you can buy anything in the world, you want the things that you can't buy. Right. You know, and you can't. Except unless you're Harvey Weinstein, you don't buy an Oscar, <laughs> and you can't buy your own Oscar. You can have one bought for you by Harvey. You can try to win. You can try mm. to buy an Oscar, but a lot of times that doesn't work. Um, Backfires. Yeah. I mean, personally, I mean, just personally on the open market, you can't go into Tiffany's and buy an Oscar. That's what I mean. You know, oh, if you want to, if you want to have that thing, if you want to have that object, and you've got everything else in the world, then you've got to ha- got got to play the game. It's another thing too about campaigning. Really, if an, if an actor was going to campaign in the 1960s and 70s, the only place you could do that was Johnny Carson. Right. You know, you couldn't be. You couldn't have clips on YouTube. No. And now that's you know that's so different now that, well, that you don't have you don't uh, uh, conduct interviews with ten different bloggers. When um, Damien Bona here is writing about these these um, campaigns, he talks about he always does them in the exact same order. He'll say, you know, what the preparation was behind the movie, what the expectations were. I think they thought it was going to be a big Oscar movie. What the reviews were, what the box office was. And then what the awards won were, and there were only two, um, New York Film Critics and DGA. And he said the DGA, like, for instance, in the Godfather year, the DGA went for Francis Ford Coppola. Well, we know that Francis Ford Coppola didn't end up winning the Oscar that year. Everybody assumed the Godfather was going to sweep, but it didn't end up because it was, it was you know, Cabaret did a lot of damage that year. I think it's Cabaret. Is it Cabaret? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Cabaret. And, you know, you got to say, you got to give Cabaret credit to be able to hold hold your own against The Godfather. If any movie could do that, Cabaret could because Cabaret is a masterpiece. I feel like I would have a really hard time deciding between those two movies. Yeah. They're two totally different movies, but they're both yeah. totally awesome. They're mm-hmm. so good and so... Um, alive and brilliant they say so much about our culture both of them so in a weird sort of way the academy kind of did the right thing in splitting i think because especially when you talk about um being able to see what a director does on screen and being able to do something interesting and unique uh fossey really did that with cabaret something that had never been done with the musical before but can we also just quickly since we're on 1972 talk about Deliverance being in the race. I mean, Deliverance was nominated for um, director and picture. Deliverance. I know. Imagine I, that I actually movie. can't even, I guess I've seen it. I can't remember that it, was it must have been years and years ago that I saw Deliverance. Maybe I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. But it's hard to imagine that, that a lot of movies that were so um, explicit about stuff, you know, like I was talking about Satyricon being so overtly, uh, like gay porn, you know. I know. It's like, where did their balls go? They're like cur- <laughs> curled up into. Oh, what was your point about Deliverance, Sasha? That it was, uh, yeah, that right. It's, I'm sorry. That it's um, that it was a bad movie that was nominated, or no, that it was that a it movie was... that wouldn't be nominated today. Well, I don't understand it. what you're saying. Exactly, that it was a movie that wouldn't be nominated today. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. Because so it's because so it... disturbing and strange that movie. Like they're just riding down a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing you know, you're getting butt fucked. <laughs> I like these weird hillbillies. Butt fucked by toothless hayseeds. <laughs> I mean, that's like the most brutal. 
<laughs> like the unforgettable scene in cinema history, practically. You know. I'm sorry that single-handedly I've made this podcast R-rated. Nobody's cussing like I am in this <laughs> podcast. Like, you guys have both just been it. so polite, and I've just been nothing but just. But what really about you? Feeling. Sure got a pretty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so what, you, what? you sure got a pretty mouth, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But oh like my God. not just bizarre, and you know the same thing about uh, back back to 1970 um, that Ken Russell was nominated for for Women in Love. Have you seen Women in Love? Yeah. The, yeah. the the wrestling scene in that movie, they've got these pendulous dicks and balls swinging around for ten minutes on screen. I mean, naked wrestling, and then full frontal male naked wrestling. <laughs> That's hysterical. It's amazing. I just love the 70s. If I could go back, I swear, that would be... I mean, I grew up in the 70s, but as far as Oscar history goes, the, 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 uh, this decade is unrivaled. There, you know, there was never... <laughs> Even the supposed junkie movies are better. I mean, Love Story takes a lot of crap and has since the day it was made, probably. And it's sort of a cliche, and it has serious problems. But as far as romances go, it's, I'm sorry to say, it's ten times better than Silver Linings Playbook. It's more honest. It's more real. It's not, you know, it's not perfect, and it's got the whole love means never having to say you're sorry and the, and the horrible the horrible theme song, which I never want to hear again. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it was trying to do something. It was trying to say something about love among people of a certain age at that time. And that's, I don't, I don't think silver linings tried to do any of those things it rested on the whole mental illness thing and used it as sort of a crutch to make it look more important than it really was but it was just frivolous and stupid well what you're seeing now is very similar to what ryan's talking about about the 60s with with my fair lady and um, is that you know i you can you can do a quick summary of the love story because i of love story because i don't really i only saw it once when i was a kid but um, but basically, the idea is that even Rocky didn't have a happy ending. Um, the Oscars don't normally reward films that wrap up, you know, so neatly as they have the last three years. Like The Hurt Locker was the last movie that had kind of an ambiguous, weird, disturbing ending. And, that and you know, happy. Love Story had a pretty disturbing ending. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was not a happy ending. What was it about again, Craig? I don't remember. What's that? Well, love story. Uh, well, I guess we can tell about the talk about the ending without us being a spoiler because anybody who hasn't seen Love Story, surely they have, right? But I mean, yeah. she's she's got cancer. She's dying of cancer. Ryan O'Neill plays the rich boy from the rich family, and she's the girl from the other side of the tracks. They and she and they meet at, at college age, fall in love, and get married. His family disowns him because. Um, because he he went against the family's wishes, and, and um, she kind of world. she kind of gives up her career and everything for him, and but they are deeply in love, and she ends up dying of cancer in the end, and that's it. So and there's a the social thing too, like like and they're they're it's at uh, he's at Harvard and she's at Radcliffe, but she's on a to- full scholarship at Radcliffe because she's from a poor family, and he's from right. a rich family. He's got into Harvard because of his family connections, and so there's that going on too, the the class structure thing. And another thing about love story that I remember is the language in, in love story. I mean, I, it's like every other word is goddamn this and goddamn that and fuck and fuck, right? Do they say fuck a lot in love story? I can't uh, remember. I'm so jaded, I'm immune to all that stuff. So I, don't really <laughs> I know, but I mean for the I'm talking about for the time. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't hear it. I don't hear it, it anymore either. You might be right. I'm just saying it didn't stick out to me because I, yeah. I, I don't. I, don't I think know. that that was really something pretty shocking at the time, though. That kind of language just wasn't in movies at all. And then that's another thing that happened in 1970. The 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 lore is Altman has always claimed that Mash is the first movie that ever had the word "fuck" in it. 
<laughs> that's the, I think that's the truth. And it was an it was an improvised ad lib, and during one of the football game scenes, and they just left it in and wondered if they would get away with it, and they and they the censors let it through. But that was the first time the fuck had ever appeared in a movie. Wow. Well, I just look at it like it's it's so much my own life. Like I. I I grew up in the 70s. I watched feminism and, you know, I grew up in that time. And then, and you can look look at it through the prism of Oscar, and this might be something that I could actually make a book about, but um, the 80s, feminism, you know, the 80s ushered in the yuppie and the kind of Reaganomics, and then the 90s, it was all sort of, you know, this weird kind of Oprah culture, and pretty soon... Feminism died, activism kind of died, and fem, you know, and and the Oscars fucking died after the seventies. Just look at the actresses who won in the seventies: Glenda Jackson for *Women in Love*, the the the, the movie with the the Dixon ball swinging, <laughs> and Jane Fonda in in the next year in *Clute*, playing a prostitute, Liza Minnelli in *Cabaret*, Glenda Jackson again then for *Touch of Class*, Ellen Burstyn in *Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore*, the first great Scorsese movie. Uh, Louise Fletcher in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and then Faye Dunaway in Network, and then Diane Keaton and Annie Hall. I mean, amazing. Set, you know, the, the run of actresses in the 70s. Oh, and look at Faye Dunaway. The actresses and the roles, too. Right, and the yeah. roles. Like Faye Dunaway, these are all women in charge, man. I mean, these are women, career women, but complicated women, you know, not princesses, not, um, I don't know, it's just. They're not all of them ingenues. Like they paid their dues before they won these Oscars, and there was respect for women. And if you didn't treat women with respect in film, you got fucking nailed by the feminists. But the feminists were were shut down, you know. And now, you know, kind of Kim Kardashian culture rules rules women in Hollywood, and um, it's pretty depressing to watch. But I just I will say to- that the the actresses who have won year after year have had pretty good roles, and that's why they win. Because the, the but the roles have become more and more scarce over the years. The really good roles for women have become scarce. But when you look at the history of best actresses, there are even some great, fantastic roles throughout the eighties too. But the but then you look at the overall scope of what happened to movies in the eighties. The movies for the, the roles for women were beginning more and more scarce. Right. Because they realized that the money was in 13-year-old boys. Mm-hmm. That's that's their audience and has been since Star Wars. That's right. I mean, when Geraldine Page wins in 1985 for A Trip to Bountiful, I mean, A Trip to Bountiful was not one of the blockbusters of the year. You know, and then the studio glommed onto that pretty fast. That that kind of movie is not going to make money. So we're really talking about fanboy culture. Mm, I think yeah, that's what really helped change things in the eighties. I think is when the when the when the market when the market for movies changed to teenage boys. Well, that's so depressing. Is it ever uh-huh. going to change back? I mean, I know that like Jennifer Lawrence is part of the new change. Maybe like you know she is part of she and Kristen Stewart and these young women that are driving the box office now. And even Melissa McCarthy, you know, drove a film to a hundred million dollars. I mean, mm-hmm. is that going to change things for women? Do you think? There's hope, but it's depressing to see that that Hollywood is still catering to the same audience. That audience is now in their late 30s and early 40s, but they're still making the same movies for them. And those are, those are the movies that are that tend to suck the air out of the room at the box office every weekend. So I don't know. There's rays of hope, but it's still... We know. have to depend on uh, 
uh, novelists, we have to depend on female novelists to write better movies than Twilight, well, to write better that. novels than Twilight. And even though Hunger Games is a pretty decent uh, series for a young adult, it, uh, you know, we need a better role than that, too, for women. We need roles for women that aren't teenagers. Here's hoping they knock Gone Girl out of the park. I know that Reese Witherspoon is producing it. Do we know for sure that she's going to be in it? I I wouldn't think so. Like we've talked about, I don't think she's really right for the role, and she must right. know that in her heart. She must realize that that she's not right for it. I think she's kind of right for it. You I think? She, yeah. yeah, she could do it. Yeah, she wouldn't be she's, my first choice, but she could do it. She's okay. the right age. She's actually spot on the right age. I mean, exactly chronologically the correct age for the for the character. She was who I saw the whole time while. Um while reading it, I hope that they give it to a skilled actress because it really needs to be someone who knows how to fucking act. It's going to be Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper because they're <laughs> going to be in every movie ever made from here until we both die. Don't give it to Jennifer Lawrence. She's too young. She can't. She's too, yeah, that's not Way right at all. Who is, who's else? No, I, was, I, was, I was obviously being sarcastic. Oh, God. <laughs> You're trying to. Um, I mean, she has to be really, really stunningly beautiful. You know, like. Uh, Kirsten Dunst could do it. I don't think she's pretty enough. She oh, could, yeah? She could handle it, though. No, it has to be somebody like... <laughs> that's Dennis. terrible. Kristen Dunst, you're not pretty enough. I'm sorry, but that's horrible to say. I know. Kristen. Go back and play with your Barbies. I think she could do it. She could do it. She wouldn't, again, be my first choice if I had to pick, but... Um... But we did this, didn't we, Craig, on the email? Yeah, a couple, we talked about it. I, I forget who we, who we were talking about. We named several different people, but I can't remember any of them. You had a bunch of good ideas, and I could never really think of anybody. All I can, all I can say is that it needs to be somebody who can, who can be convincing as Little Miss Perfect. Well, I don't want to say it for people who haven't read it, so never mind. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to spoil it. such a great No, movie. yeah, definitely. This is a movie that we cannot talk about at all. We can't talk about the novel because of the surprises that it has in store. We can't ruin it. That movie totally what's, what's great about it is that the surprises in it are impactful, but it, the novel doesn't depend on them. You know what I mean? It, it's not like... It's not like an M. Night Shyamalan movie where you're just wowed by the surprise. The surprise happens halfway through, and then there's a whole other rest of the novel to go, and the, and the second half is just as brilliant, if not more, than the first half. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, one person I think I, I remember that I named was uh, Amy Adams. I wonder if Amy Adams could do this role. I she, think she could. She could do it. She could definitely do it. Absolutely. Yeah. She's a good choice. And we'll leave it there. You've been listening to episode 22 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week with another episode as we make our way through the 1970s, the best Oscar year ever.